In. This is Tap In. With me, Shania Dunlinson. afternoon evening depending on when you're choosing to tune in this is tap in the podcast that promises to make you a more informed conscious and well-rounded individual i'm your ever so eloquent host shania dungingson a student journalist at the university of leeds and i'm determined to do my bit in making sure there are as many new savvy individuals challenging news organizations as possible I'm back and I'm so excited to be back with you guys. I've been sick and unwell and obviously this is a podcast so you guys only get to hear my my voice. So I didn't want it to be too snotty for you guys. Um, But here I am today. Um, We're starting with the what did she say segment of course. Um, Let's get into it. (laughs) What did they say? Let's get right into it. So this week, our first story of what did she say comes from The Sun. I've diversified my sources this week. Very proud of myself for doing so. Um, This one comes from, it's it's from the 30th of October, so it's a little bit out of date, but the content of it is still very relevant. The headline reads, Choose a side. Leader of extremist Islamic group calling for jihad at anti-Israel demo is exposed at as NHS GP. Now, the first thought that I got when reading this, I thought, what the hell? I wanted to read more, right? The idea of an NHS GP being the leader of an Islamic extremist group is honestly, uh, it's big groundbreaking news, right? However, from a very, very quick Google search, I was able to debunk this story within the first 30 seconds of me reading it by searching this guy's name. So I'll give you the context and the summation of the story. Basically, this extremist group, as the sum refers to them, their name is Hizbut Tahir, and they define themselves as an Islamic political party. Now, They're a political party in some countries. Lots of other countries don't recognise them because of the the methods that I guess that some violent methods that have been used by the party um, in response to certain things. Now, as someone who is conscious of Islamophobia in the media and around me, I am very conscious of the fact that extremism is something that is thrown around quite willy-nilly. So I wanted to get into what this party was doing and what they were doing in this actual article. So the article that they're referring to, they were protesting in front of the Turkish and Egyptian embassies, protesting a very, very refreshing idea that I've never actually heard before and was asking Muslim uh, Muslim parliaments, the Muslim parliaments of Egypt and Turkey to send in their own military to help the people of Gaza. Now, this is super interesting to me because... Western powers always love to get their fingers involved and we we love to get involved in other people's conflicts. And to be honest, we should sometimes because a lot of the time it's got some kind of route back to us. So I do think that we have a responsibility in some things. However, 
I think that sometimes, <laughs> um, potentially in this particular conflict with how um, delicate it is, that perhaps it should be the people that are nearer to the conflict and understand the people and understand the political climate of the place that would perhaps have better understanding. But anyway, without further ado, I carry on. Now, the sun then goes on to describe the protests that were seen on the date of October 31st in front of these embassies. And I'll read the quote. It says, Another member of the group asked what the solution is to liberate people in the concentration camp called Palestine and was met with chants of jihad, jihad, jihad. Now, what is jihad? I've only ever seen it in the context of Islamic extremism, probably because of my very westernized mainstream news consumption, right? Um, so I looked into it and actually I had the opportunity to speak to the Islamic Society at University of Leeds that were in the student union for a few days asking and stopping people if they had any questions about the religion to actually try and do the same thing that I am which is try and cut through all of this misinformation about the religion itself. Obviously I'm not specifically talking about Islam <laughs> but misinformation in general and the first thing that this Muslim guy said to me was ah, you do a podcast on misinformation, well, Islam is the most misconstrued religion. And I think we all know that to be true, whether or not you are someone who is pro, pro-Islam, pro as it were. So jihad appears in the Quran in several different contexts, but the main context that I, I got from my research and from this conversation with the Islamic society was that jihad is a representation of the, the meritocratic struggle against oppression right jihad means the fight against struggle so in the context of jihad being used in this story where we have pro-palestinian protesters outside the turkish and egyptian embassies protesting for military intervention into the humanitarian crisis that's happening in, in gaza right now i think to me i can instantly see what struggle they're referring to right the struggle of the of the Palestinian people that are being bombed constantly for two weeks, um, the civilians, right? So, I think that the sun is 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 harnessing on us not knowing what the word jihad means, and I think that that's what I really struggle with because I think that it is th- the job of the journalist to present that information to your readers, to put in they said jihad, jihad, jihad without any context, is you insinuating that it is something of extremism, it is something of violence, when in fact it is the complete opposite. Now, in this interview with The Guardian that Dr. Abdul Vahid did a few years prior, he actually points out that the British media always gets lost in the word jihad, that I think that we see some like almost trigger words and highlight something and categorise something that it is not. Um, and that is a very dangerous thing because journalists, lots of lots of times in newsrooms are just rushing to meet deadlines and aren't taking the time to research this stuff. But in fact, it's damaging. It's damaging for you to present Islamic ideas without doing any research and even tr- e- not even attempting to present a another opinion on it. Um, there's not even one sentence in this article that I'm referring to that that takes a step back and says, well, this is what they're actually protesting for and uh, take it as it is. 
Now, back onto this misconceptions of extremism and Islam in general. Um, uh, extremism defined by David Cameron in this Guardian article is refusing to subscribe to British values such as free speech and the rule of law. Very vague. It was the definition given in the Guardian, but I believe that that's what they, in, in this fluffy politics language, that that is how they would try and describe extremism without sounding racist, frankly. Um, but what does that mean? Because, <laughs> like, what does that mean? Because... I, there's, there's plenty of examples of the British government not abiding to free speech. I mean, for example, in the last few weeks, trying to stop people protesting, their right to protest, their freedom to speak on things. Um, and, and for me, it hones back in on this, this same idea of us thinking that we're better than everybody else. The example I always use is in discussions about reparations in terms of the slave trade and... Um, just colonialism in general, the British government's response is normally, oh, we can't give money to all of these African governments that we've stolen from in, in <laughs> centuries ago because their governments are corrupt, so they won't know how to use the money correctly. They'll, they'll use it for other things. Is that not what our government has been doing? <laughs> um, so I, I, I just like, my one of my favourite topics in this news is, is, is the hypocrisy of it all. Um, and it's so important that we take a step back and say, actually, is this an Islamic group that is just using their their freedom of speech to speak for what they're talking? And they're not bombing anyone. They're not attacking anyone. They're not being violent at these protests or at least at this protest that the article is referring to. So why is it that that we label them as such? And the reason why I hate to break it to you guys is because the British media is racist. It's very easy and very beneficial for news organisations to present dangerous ideas because it is those dangerous ideas that are living in our society. I think that even as someone who is mixed raced, we all have built in racism within us. We live in a racist society, so we are constantly seeing these ideas reflected and put onto us. So we need to take a step back and reanalyze everything without the Western power and ego overshadowing it. So when I was speaking to the Islamic Society this week, they gave me a pamphlet about misconceptions on Islam and super interesting to me. I was like, this is perfect for me. Um, so I had a good read. And what it says on, on terrorism and extremism is super, super interesting, for, especially for someone who has never read the Quran, right? Like for people writing these articles have never read the Quran. They never actually go to the religious book itself to see what it says. And as like in, in every religion, lots of times stuff is misconstrued from the actual teachings of the religion itself because of culture, because of lots of different factors. So when you actually look at what the group itself has to say and what they say their book has to say about it, I think that that's the most, that that should be your first call of, of information. So what does it say? It says, Islam is portrayed as strange and foreign to people's normal instincts and values. The media portrays as a terrorist any Muslim who fights, regardless of whether they fight justly or unjustly, or whether they are oppressing others or being oppressed. 
Islam totally forbids and codes the misguided acts of vigilantes that target innocent civilians. Islam does not remain silent in the face of oppression, injustice and humiliation. Any religion or civilization that does this would never survive. Fight in the cause of Allah against those who fight you, but do not transgress limits. Allah does not love transgressors. It then goes on to say, it's another quote from the, from the Quran. If anyone murders an innocent person, it will be as if he has murdered the whole of humanity. And if anyone saves a person, it will be as if he has saved the whole of humanity. Now, like to me, it, it, it seems super beautiful, I think, this, this idea of not sitting back in the face of oppression and pro-Palestinian pre protesters, that's what they believe they are doing, right? This um, big military state bombing a very small civilian area. So their argue is, is that this is jihad, right? This is, this is the, the struggle this is the fight against the struggle. They are protecting those who they think are oppressed in their opinion, and they're not doing it in a violent way. So why is it that even when protesting peacefully, the Sun chooses to report them as an extremist Islamic group? It also refers to them as an anti-Israel demo, which is just very strategic wordplay by not calling them pro-Palestinian. Because there's lots of pro-Palestinian protesters that might not necessarily call themselves anti-Israel, just as there are pro-Palestinian protesters that would call themselves anti-Israel. But it's just strategic word choice for you to call them that, even though that's not what they label themselves. And sorry, I, whilst I've been um, focusing on my word choice and trying to very clearly communicate what I'm trying to get across here because it's very tedious and very, um, important that we get it accurate, right? But the main three words of this headline, the first three words, sorry, are choose a side. Choose a side. An NHS doctor who was also the leader of an, of an Islamic group has to choose a side. Well, frankly, the son, I don't think you've given him an opportunity to choose. Um, I think that by presenting him as this secret, conniving criminal who was treating patients whilst having like this secret extremist agenda in his head, um, it isn't fair. I think as an active member of the society, he's more active than I am. He's been working for 20 years in, in this failing and struggling NHS. And we're going to say to him, you know what, forget all the work that you've done. I I mean, I agree, I think. I, I don't know the NHS's policies on whether or not doctors and nurses can have political opinions, can have them publicly. Um, and if it is, then, then they're well within his, their rights to fire him. But I just think, are we just going to completely skip over all the work that he's done? Are, are those lives that he saved. The son even went to go interview some of his patients to reveal this secret and say to them, did you know that you were getting treated by an Islamic extremist? Wow. Like, <laughs> that's just crazy to me. I, I understand that people have, have, but that's what I think. I was just about to say, I, I understand that people have a right to know where their healthcare providers are coming from. I don't know where any of my doctors are from. You could tell me anything about my doctor and I'd probably say, oh my gosh, I didn't know that. But am I going to refuse treatment? Probably not. Um, but yeah, just to get back on that point, just to re-root re back round after that ramble, 
I just think it's very sad to see that someone that has been an active contributing member of this society, whilst also being the leader of this party, is being completely um, scapegoated as what he is not, which is someone who is living a double a double life. Okay, so moving on to, well, I wish I could say lighter themes, but we're on the trans issue again, because when are we not on the trans issue? Because it's one of the most divisive in British press. But this one from the Daily Mail. This one reads, War of words. Public libraries have far fewer gender critical books than trans activist titles on their shelves. Dot, dot, dot. Prompting censorship accusation. So... My first thought when I read this, what the hell is a gender critical book? <laughs> um, as someone who's walked this planet for 21 years, I've never even come across that phrase. And maybe that's the point that the Daily Mail is making here. But very, mm, I want to use the word interesting, but I don't think it's interesting. It's, it's more interesting because why did someone do this in the first place? But basically, um, the Free Speech Association um conducted research into public libraries and counted every single trans activist book they had and every single gender critical book that they had um, and presented it in, in, in a format so that we could see that in fact public libraries were not providing the British citizens the education that they needed in terms of gender criticism. Now, so gender criticism, what is it? It's, it's the argument that men are biological men and women are biological women now my first thought of this is i was just thinking surely this just seems like a really really simple solution as to why there are more trans activist books and that's just because it's a more spoke about like more spoken about issue in the last decade the the trans the trans issue of existence should we call it had must have without me even doing any research i know that the literature of trans activism has gone up within the past decade. Whereas gender criticism, how long has that been around? How long have people been writing in books, men are men and women are women? A lot longer, right? So naturally, when a new issue comes up, there's going to be more literature produced and therefore more displayed. It's not necessarily anything to do with the fact that public libraries, which is what the Daily Mail is insinuating here, that public libraries are favouring trans people. So then what is the solution? Do we have someone's job who whose job it is to count all of these books and make sure that there's a direct 50-50 split? Is that what we want? Do we think that there needs to be equal voices on this issue? Because uh, I mean, I mean, I've, I, I know what I've heard a lot of and that is gender criticism within my life. So maybe it's just refreshing and different to have such uh, a shift in perspective on this issue. And in fact, I can prove <laughs> that public libraries and the British public aren't supporting trans people because the YouGov poll from August of this year revealed that in 2021, there were 16% of people having negative feelings towards trans people. And in 2023, it's risen to 25%. So transphobia is on the rise. So if that's on the rise, how does it make sense that public libraries across the entire UK with all of their different party associations in different regions are using this trans idea as uh, like they're, they're promoting it almost it doesn't make any sense the Daily Mail article recognizes 
the public interest in gender critical books. It, it, it recognises that there are a group of people that want to hear that men are men and women are women. But it fails to look into why. Why are there so many people that want that information? And the answer is, is because they're transphobic. But I guess what they're arguing is that you're entitled to be transphobic if you <laughs> if you want to be transphobic. I'm just trying to think of a a cognitive argument line from this article because the only thing it is screaming is transphobia. So the article ends with a quote from Toby Young, who is the general secretary of the Free Speech Union, who were the people who set up this report. And he says that too many libraries have been captured by woke activists behaving like bespeckled zealots in the culture war. I mean... Can a library be captured? Who... It's just such a silly accusation because who across the UK is uniting whoever's in charge of book selection in public libraries? So whoever's in charge of those selection in public book libraries, who's uniting them all so they can all unanimously degree, like agree, hey, 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 we're just putting more trans books in because we love trans people. And we know that people don't love trans people, as the YouGov poll suggested. So... Is it that or is it just that there was an influx of literature? They then do a little political dig because when can the Daily Mail miss out on blaming Labour for something? Um, they then say the five councils with the fewest gender critical books were all Labour run. I just I find it so amusing that someone's taken the time to not only access all of these different library records of their physical books, their online copies. They also looked at how many people were renting out the copies and they determined that people wanted, that's what I meant earlier by saying that people, there was a need for gender critical books because they were being loaned out more. But the simple answer to that is that, yeah, of course they're being loaned out more because more people are transphobic um, and are looking to reinstate and have an echo chamber of their own ideas reflected back on them, right? Um, and like my argument is, is that a public library, if anything, should be challenging um, ideas that are popular, as it were. And unfortunately, as it might, like I hate to say it, but even though that they think that being trans is a popular, fashionable idea, frankly, it's not. <laughs> it's not popular because they're a minority. Um, so it can't be. Now, this is where this one gets a little bit interesting because do you know why? Do you know why they conducted this report in the first place? Now, it's because they got wind of the fact that six gender critical books were taken off of the shelves of a library in Calderdale. I don't know where that is, but they were removed and they decided, whoa, 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 something fishy is going on here. We're going to do a report. Now, why were they removed? This is where it gets super interesting. It was part of council guidance titled Welcoming LGBTQI+. This advice it puts emphasis on making trans people and queer people comfortable in public spaces, as they should be. Um, and their argument, which is a very logical one, is to not have these books on physical display so that when trans people are walking into these buildings they're not literally reading a book that questions your identity can you imagine how paralyzed like how polarizing that would be rather 
for you to look in. If it was like if I walked into a public library and it said, mm, do black people actually exist? Like that all of the gender dysphoria that trans people have to go to in terms of living with their own identity. It's just about taking steps like this. And I really, really do support this like welcoming kind of aspect of councils to make people feel comfortable. That's what it's about. It's not about, about pushing an agenda. It's not about putting more trans books in so that other non-trans people can read those books and become trans. It's about trans people walking in and feeling safe in their own public library. And in fact, the councillor who gave this advice, Southwark councillor Isidore George, said, we do not say you shouldn't stock these books or consider methods of censorship around them. Rather, we would recommend be mindful and not promote these books and to think carefully about how many you want to buy. So, in fact, it's a completely misconstrued article because these libraries weren't taking them off the shelves and throwing them in the bin. They just weren't taking them off and weren't putting them on display the advice didn't even tell them to take them off it's probably the managers of their own independent public libraries that have decided oh actually i don't really feel comfortable putting that out so the daily mail has written a whole article on public libraries promoting trans ideas over gender critical ideas when in fact I think that the facts of the case are is there's been an influx of literature in the past decade to do with trans transness because it's a current and di like diversive issue. And second of all, the whole point of this is to make trans people comfortable. And that's what the Daily Mail has an issue with. And that's what the Free Speech Association has. Because I don't think that as a cisgendered person, you should be uncomfortable by seeing a book that says, what is transness? Because if you do get uncomfortable by the question, what is transness? It's your own internalised transphobia coming out. And I'm here to tell you. Okay, now this is my favourite story of this segment this week because the headline itself is the whole story. <laughs> um, so listen to this one. Having black friends does not mean you cannot discriminate employment tribunal rules as it finds Boots worker did racially harass a colleague despite having two black guests at her wedding. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> Isn't that absolutely crazy? The And I, I mean, when I went to go show my friend this after I found this, I found this alone and I was peeing myself with laughter because I thought how funny that <laughs> this is newsworthy that it's actually newsworthy in 2023 for daily mail readers to be told that having black friends doesn't mean that you can't be racist people still think that it's crazy isn't it and it's not even black friends in this case it's black guests at a wedding like that's so vague could be a plus one do you know what i mean it's anyway so let's get into it so this story talks about um a black manager at a boots pharmacy and his two um two work colleagues that were under him right these two white women and he pulled them up on something one of them got upset started crying and calling him aggressive um and basically they ended up these two white women got so agitated that they ended up calling the police and the pharmacist left before the police got there um it's a very sad story, actually. He describes himself as, at the end, being so shaken and feared for his safety. Do you know, in your workplace, as a manager, as a man, who, as a man who's worked there for over a decade, um, 
what has to happen in order for you to be shaken and fearing for your safety in your own workplace? As a man against two women, what does that look like? And that looks like white privilege, right? (laughs) As a black man, the only way that you would, like the only thing that they have over you is the fact that they know that if they call the police, that likelihood is is that he's going to be seen as this aggressive black stereotype that is being forced upon him and they get to play the the helpless white victims of of white tears of crying now you can sit here and laugh with me with this one because it gets even funnier but emma walker who was one of the women who um she was the one who actually walked in after she saw her work colleague crying and then was the one who got in his face and kicked him out of work and stuff. But she said that she could not have been influenced by his race because having worked with the company for 25 years, she made a lot of friends with pharmacists, two of whom were black Nigerian women who came to her wedding. One of them sang, I mean, I mean. One of them sang, So they're not even two of your black friends. You probably only invited one of them so that she could sing a song. And what has working in a pharmacy for 25 years got anything to do with you challenging your own internalised racism? I don't know, Emma. Honestly, babe. Um, It says that she... (laughs) It says that she also invited several Asian pharmacists to her wedding. Moreover, the full-time pharmacists in the store was Mauritian and the other Vietnamese. Like, guys, it's 2023. You can be racist against black people and not against Asian people. It's, you can pick and choose, actually. You can actually be racist to all of them. <laughs> In fact, you can. she could actually just be a secret racist. You know, one that doesn't verbalise it because she works with them. Like, proving that she has work colleagues that are people of colour doesn't mean that a racist person is going to be sat there effing and blinding because she'd be fired within the first week of course she would especially if there are so many people of colour at this workplace she's just if she is a racist person she's keeping them all to herself and it comes out in in a story like this where her own biases her own racial biases of seeing black men as scary and as aggressive and as loud has come back to bite her in the bum and frankly I'm glad because if your defence in a court of law is I've had two black people at my wedding, yeah, then I'm sorry, you're done. (laughs) You're done for. Now, moving on to things that you don't know that I know. So if you don't know, get to know. This is If You Don't Know, Get To Know. Our first story this week, super exciting news. Louis Rubiales is banned from football for three years. Now, this is the ongoing story of the Spanish football president that kissed um, the Spanish football player, uh, Jenny Hermoso, um, when she was getting her medal at the Women's World Cup. And he's finally been banned. It only took them long enough, right? I only included this story because I have not seen it reported anywhere. Um, the first, like when it first happened, obviously the images of her of her being kissed were plastered across every single news website. Um, and then the follow-up of his mum doing the hunger strike in the church and then him resigning. But no, he's officially been banned. I don't know what three years will do. I'm going to be honest. 
I don't know what three years is really going to do, but it's small wins that we take in this feminist movement of of trying not to be kissed without our consent, guys. <laughs> but anyway, let's, let's let me give you a little little bit of context if you've not heard this story before. Yeah, so Jenny Hermoso was receiving her medal at the Spanish World Cup final, and Louis. Rubialis took it upon himself to give her a smack on the like a quick smack on the lips. When I say smack, I mean kiss, not not physical violence. Gave her a kiss on the lips, sent her on her way in a celebratory way. However, if you have had sex education within the past decade, you will know the laws of consent, or I hope that you should know the laws of consent, which is that you have to actually ask somebody if you want to kiss them on the lips. You should probably even ask if you want to kiss them on the cheek. Um, very shocking to me. Probably not shocking to. Um, people that have grown up in a generation where it was okay to kiss people without consent, of course. Um, but yeah, so Hermoso herself has said that she she released in a statement that it had left her feeling vulnerable and a victim of aggression and that it was an impulsive act, sexist, out of place and without any type of consent from any part. Now, Louis Rubialis actually tried to defend it and say it was consensual. I don't know how... You could argue it was consensual um, because it was all recorded. And the cherry on top of the cake was that he'd also been seen previously that evening with his hands down his pants with children nearby. So, yeah, disgusting, disgusting man, finally banned from football, but only for three years. So I'll give you an update in three years. (laughs) We'll see if it stays. We'll see if it gets any better. But for, for now, small wins. Now, this one's a bit of American news. We're switching it up, but this one was just so shocking I had to include it. Let me know if you guys found it just as shocking. This one comes from the Gothamist. It says that over a decade, 10 NYPD officers accounted for $68 million in police misconduct payouts. Guys, do you know how crazy those statistics are? Between 2013 and 2023, Only 10 officers are responsible for $68 million worth of payout. Like, that's not even talking about the cases of police misconduct that don't even reach it to court. Not even the ones that go to court and fail. Those are the ones that they actually had to, had to give money to, right? And as you you and I both know, the, especially the NYPD, but American the American policing system overall is one that is failing I think that we can say and this is clearly like evidence for it it's just crazy to me that you would think that that anyway but anyway let's go into some of the more shocking factors of this story all of them are still on public payroll so (laughs) do you know how crazy that is do you know how crazy that is that they've failed at their job they've failed and they're still getting paid, but not only are they getting paid, it's not even just failing your job, like, oh, dropping the coffee in the car or whatever. No, you're in police. These are cases of false entry, of false arrest, really traumatic stories, and they're all still on the payroll, even though they've got these staggering statistics that, I mean, in any other profession, <laughs> they'd fire on the spot. I mean, my waitressing job if i if i was to steal even 50 quid worth of stuff and they had to pay 50 quid i would get fired do you know what i mean um 
Anyway, so it says that many have attained ranks above sergeants. They've continued to rise above in policing. And this is why it is reform the police. It's a system that is corrupt and it's just going to continue to be <laughs> being corrupt if nothing has changed. Um, in the first half of 2023, the NYPD has already paid out 50 million in police misconduct payouts. Now, to me, that is evidence of a failing police report. But but please, please wait, wait please the president of the police benevolent association came out in response to this report to this report and said that this wasn't evidence of the jobs doing their um, of the police officers doing their job wrong if 68 million dollars is not evidence enough that you were doing something wrong i don't know what is like what do you mean it's not evidence of them doing their job wrong because it's not evidence of them doing their job right is it I mean, if it is, I think you'd need to reconsider something, mate. This all comes back to this idea of impunity, the idea that police officers can commit crimes without being held to consequence for them. And their consequence is getting this. Well, it's not a fine, is it? Because they don't have to pay it themselves, but these kind of payouts. But it's this idea that they don't care. <laughs> these guys have can have committed these well in some case crimes have committed these crimes continued to and have been rewarded for doing so um there's been no consequence for them so what what is the solution what is the solution and it finishes on an absolutely blinder of a statistic out in this one officer david greco who still works for the nypd has had 48 cases brought against him alone which total to over $1 million. Now, isn't that crazy? And you've still got a job. I mean, I could do it better. I could definitely police better and <laughs> without costing them temp like a million. Do you know what I mean? I'll do it for you, NYPD. Now, on the theme of failing police institutions, <laughs> this article comes from Mail Online, and this one is to do with ex-convicts being given slack it reads burglars and drug dealers to get given a clean record and will not have to inform employers about their past crimes under plans to cut re-offending so the main premise of this story is a bit boring um but i mean very daily mail reader targeted and that we fear criminals right um sorry not we i guess i am a daily mail reader now though but yeah <laughs> um it feeds into this idea that criminals are criminals convicts are convicts shouldn't be rehabilitated but basically they're reducing different um sentences to make it easier for prisoners to get housing and other jobs later on in life and when i say it it's a kind of like sensationalist headline it makes you think that these guys are running around free on the streets no it's just a tiny reduction in the in the time that they have to register as an offender right but listen to this Listen to this. People try and say the British police, the Met Office. Oh, I mean, I mean to be honest, I've, I've never heard anyone say it, but some people are fans of the British police, right? A staggering 214,000 burglaries in England and Wales, that's 587 a day, went unsolved in the year 2023. What? 587 burglaries a day aren't solved but uh, but
But the issue is, is that we need to focus on the fact that they're cutting down the burglar sentences. No, you need to be asking them and saying, mate, can you give us some intel on how you guys are doing this? Because clearly we've got no clue what we're doing. How can you have, first of all, that many burglaries a year? Staggering, staggering, but unsolved, even crazier. But yeah, I just, I just wanted to end on that today. It's a bit of a shorter episode this week, but I just wanted to end on that because my big themes are a cab, all cops are bastards. Um, <laughs> but yeah, that's brought me to the end of this week's episode. It's been a bit of a snottier, early one this week. A bit of a shorter one, a bit jumping all over the place. We've covered Islamophobia. We've covered the failing police systems in the UK and in the US. We've looked at trans people. I'm just, I'm really, really enjoying learning about these, this stuff with you guys, like taking the time to research and unlearn my own unconscious biases um, with things like this. But I really hope you enjoyed this week. I'll be back again. I'm debating whether to make this a bi-weekly podcast to make the episodes a bit longer, but we're aiming for next week. So I'll see you next week. I hope you're ready to hear some more misinforming stories and to learn along with me. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. This has been Tappin and I've been Shania Dunglingson.